0: Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Um, My prayer is that today, as we study God's word together, uh, we can all mutually be be devoted to coming to know God as he truly is. uh, To come to know his will and what it is that he desires of us. If your Bibles aren't already open to 1 Samuel 15, We're going to be spending a uh, little bit of time there here in just a moment, uh, and I invite you to open your Bibles with us as we study today. Last week, we began a series uh, that I entitled More Than Sacrifice, uh, and we saw a consistent theme throughout the Old Testament of God comparing different aspects of character and, and service to him with the importance of sacrifice. And we saw that those statements in the Old Testament are not intended to belittle the importance of sacrifice. Uh, If you look throughout the Old Testament, the the concept of sacrifice is one of the most central aspects, at least of the outward worship that God commanded for them to bring of him. And so when God says that he desires something and not sacrifice or something more than sacrifice, that is intended to have a, a deep impact Uh, To impress us with how much this other aspect of our service to the Lord is important, uh, is what God desires of us. We looked last week at the concept of mercy and not sacrifice. We see that in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. It's quoted by Jesus uh, twice in the Gospel of Matthew. And we saw how it was really a concept not only in Hosea, not only in the words of Jesus, but throughout the Old Testament. This, this concept that God desires us and not just our stuff. God desires our hearts and not just going through the motions of outward obedience. Um, God desires for our, our lives and our hearts to reflect his character, his mercy, his steadfast love. Uh, and not just for our acts of, of outward worship. But we started to touch last time on a a potential misapplication of that principle, mercy and not sacrifice. And I want to address that that potential misapplication in a little bit more detail by seeing this other point that the Old Testament makes for us, and that's that that God desires obedience and not sacrifice. We saw that in verse 22 of what uh, Bini read for us. Uh, Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. I think sometimes when we see Jesus, in particular in Matthew 12, saying that, they, that God desires mercy and not sacrifice, it may be very easy for us to fall into the thinking that what he means there is I desire compassion and not strict obedience. Especially when we look at the example of of David, um, whether justified or unjustified, Jesus uses uh, David's example. We might think, well, what what Jesus is saying is that we need to not be quite so uptight about following his law. Um, You know, that, the, the Pharisees' problem here is that they were just too obedient. Uh, and they needed to loosen up a little bit and make more room for exceptions. Times where disobeying God's law might actually be more consistent with what he wants from us than actually obeying it. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is that what God says to us? You know, this, this concept is what some have called situation ethics. That sometimes extenuating circumstances may justify disobedience uh, as long as we believe that disobedience is in fact more consistent with the love, compassion, and mercy of God. Is that what Jesus is teaching? Does God ever indicate that we should do what we think he would want us to do rather than what he has told us to do? Well, 1 Samuel 15, I think, shows us somebody who, who took that approach to obedience, um, who sought to obey the Lord, but saw things a little bit differently in the situation and thought, well, I think God would actually be more pleased if I do it this way. How did that work out? Um, you, we see here in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3, The command that God gives to Saul, the first king of Israel, he says in verse three of 1 Samuel 15, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. God is pretty specific there on exactly what Saul is supposed to do. I want to read uh, again the the section that uh, Beanie read for us, starting in verse 13. And I want you to, in particular, take note of what's going on in Saul's mind. How he views what he has just done. Starting in verse 13, it says, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord our God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribe of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord, your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. You see, there's two very different perspectives of what's going on here. What what does Saul think about what he's just done? The very first words out of his mouth when when he comes is, behold, I have obeyed the commandment of the Lord. He he repeats that again uh, in verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Did Saul obey God or did he not obey God? Saul evidently thought that he had. He thought that what he had done was according to what God commanded and desired of him. But what does God say? You know, Saul even has some reasons that he gives why he handled things the way he did. Uh, We we did go on the mission that the Lord sent us on. We did devote them to destruction, but we spared uh, the best of these things to sacrifice to our God at Gilgal. That seems like a pretty reasonable thing. It seemed very reasonable in Saul's mind. What is God's response? Does God say, well, I, I can see why you would think that. That's understandable. It's not exactly what I asked for, but I appreciate the sentiment." Now God says to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. He specifically says in verse 23, you have rejected the word of the Lord. Saul taking God's instructions and applying them how seemed best to him, what seemed justified to him God says it was rejecting the word of the Lord. What God commands of us and what he desires of us are never two different things. This approach may work in human relationships. You know, if, if Aaron asks me to pick up some Taco Bell on my way home and I decide that I'm going to go get her favorite dish from El Campesino instead and bring it home. She's probably not going to be too upset with me, right? I, I, in my mind, was thinking of her and thinking of what I thought she might actually uh, appreciate most. And so I may not do exactly what she said, but I did something she would appreciate. Can we take that approach when it comes to God? When God speaks to us, Does he expect us to kind of read between the lines and and determine what it is we think he would actually appreciate more than what he told us to do? No, the only way that we know who God is and what he wants is for him to tell us. We're not capable of reading the mind of God and of determining, you know, well, I think even though you said this, God, I think this would actually be more consistent with your character. I think this would actually be more pleasing in your sight. And so as we think about what Jesus says when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, when he quotes that from the Old Testament, certainly he's not saying that that God just wants us to loosen up a little bit when it comes to obeying his word um, and not be as serious about that. Uh, just go with the sentiment of what God wants and let that be your guide. Now, in fact, Jesus' point is not to justify disobedience, but to urge the Pharisees to a truer and deeper obedience to God's law. Look at what else Jesus says in the Gospels. Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 17 Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Does Jesus advocate a a looser, more relaxed approach to God's law? No, Jesus encourages the opposite, in fact. A, A truer, deeper, more complete obedience of God's law. He says that willfully loosing where God has bound may even disqualify us from entering the kingdom, our, our righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if we are to enter the kingdom. When Jesus urges us to focus on the heart, that's not at the expense of obedience. No, he's urging us to obey God first and foremost from the heart in a deeper and truer sense. In Matthew chapter 7, In verse 21 through 23, Jesus goes on to say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Religious involvement, mighty works in God's name, outward appearances of spirituality are not the measure of whether or not we're kingdom citizens, but whether or not we are truly pursuing the will of the king in our lives. Jesus in the gospels is not replacing meticulous obedience with a more laid back, subjective obedience. He is replacing surface level obedience with an obedience that flows forth from the heart from the inner man. it's a higher standard of obedience that Jesus is calling us to. And we see this concept, this emphasis on obedience, not just in first Samuel 15, not just in Jesus's words. We see it throughout the scriptures. If we want a full picture of who God is, we, we need to uh, come to see every aspect of his character. Um, I want us to turn our to Numbers chapter 15 for a moment. You know, in, in Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus mentions uh, God desiring mercy and not sacrifice, that's in the context of the misapplication of the Pharisees regarding the Sabbath law. Right? They they are saying that Jesus and his disciples are breaking the Sabbath because they're they're plucking grain from the field as they walked through. Um But I want us to go to the Old Testament and see what Jehovah God has to say about his Sabbath law. Numbers chapter 15, read with me in verse 32 through 36. Starting in verse 32, it says, While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Do you see that passage? This isn't just the Israelites kind of doing what they thought God might want. You know, we we think God is really serious about the Sabbath. And so we're going to execute the death penalty on this individual. No, they stop and they ask, what does God want us to do? And Jehovah God from his own mouth says you are to put that man to death. Is God just really lax about his law and laid back? This man is picking up sticks. What's the problem here? Look a little bit earlier in this passage, and I think we'll better understand what's really going on. Start in verse 27. God says, If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally, to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is a native among the people of Israel, or for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. That's the context. And immediately, God goes into telling us this story about the man who is breaking the Sabbath. Why why does this man get the death penalty? I think we see here that God's focus was not on the severity of the outward act of disobedience, but the heart that it came from. It doesn't matter how serious it is. You know, we might say, well, isn't that a little bit harsh? This man's not a murderer. He didn't steal somebody's wife. He's not doing some gross act of immorality. He's just breaking the Sabbath. Well, God is looking at the heart. Not just the outward damage that that causes. I think sometimes that's the way we view sin. We think, well, yeah, but my sin's not that serious. It's not hurting anybody, right? Well, does it come from a heart that is willfully denying God, rejecting God, disobeying what he's told me to do? Then it is serious. Because when God talks about obedience, he's not just talking about how it appears to men. He's talking about the heart that it comes from. And that's where God's focus is and that's what Jesus is calling us to is a deeper and truer obedience that takes seriously even the the littlest command of the law. Why? Because God said it. Because we want in every aspect to honor and obey him as our king, our sovereign Lord. God's focus was not on the severity of the outward sin. God's focus wasn't on how impressive the outward acts of worship were, right? It didn't matter if I give God a thousand rams and a hundred rivers, a hundred thousand rivers of oil and sacrifice. It'll mean nothing if it's not coming from a heart genuinely submitting and obeying him. And an act as simple as picking up sticks on the Sabbath day can be worthy of death if coming from a rebellious and willfully disobedient heart. That's how focused God is on our hearts. He's not lax about obedience. He's serious about obedience, that it must come from an act of the heart, not just the outward man. The same God that desires mercy and not sacrifice uh, did not yield to human rationalizations or emotional justifications. Look in 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13, we won't read this entire story, uh, but you re- may remember, uh, you re- may remember this prophet who comes and prophesies against uh, the altar in Bethel that Jeroboam had set up. Um, and on his way back from prophesying destruction on Jeroboam's household, uh, he has been told by the Lord not to stop in Bethel, not to eat bread, not to drink water, not to go back by the way he came, but to go make his prophecy and leave by another way. But what we see here uh, in 1 Kings chapter 13 Um, is that an old prophet comes and invites him into his house. And the prophet says, well, no, I can't. God told me I'm not supposed to eat bread or drink water. And the old prophet says, well, I'm a prophet too. And an angel appeared to me and said, bring him back to your house. And so the prophet goes in and eats with them. Look in verse 20. Of 1 Kings 13. It says, and as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your father's. And God sends a lion to kill him on the road. And to make it very clear what has happened, the lion doesn't eat him, doesn't tear him up. The lion just sits there next to the body so that everybody walking by can see the judgment that God has brought. Not only does God say that this young prophet has disobeyed his word, God brings judgment and God records it for our learning. What are we supposed to learn from this story? Why did God include this in his word for us? You know, we, we might say, well, you know, surely this is a reasonable misunderstanding. Uh, this guy was a prophet and he said that an angel appeared to him and, and, and told him to, to bring me back to his house. You know, aren't I justified in, in having done what he said? That seems like a pretty good reason to go against what God told him initially. But God doesn't think it's a reasonable excuse. He not only brings judgment, but he makes it very clear. A lesson for his people, a lesson for us today. Um, God is so serious about obedience that he expects us to diligently investigate and inquire to make sure that what we are doing is in fact his will. And we see that concept throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament as well. Um, Just because somebody says they're speaking from the Lord, we need to be very careful, very sure that what we are following is, in fact, the Lord. In fact, God had stated this previously in his law. Turn to Deuteronomy 13. This is a little bit of a longer passage, but I, I want to spend a little bit of time reading it. Deuteronomy 13, this applies very closely to what this young prophet had done. In chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord, your God, commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Verse six. If your brother, the son of your mother or your son or your daughter or your wife you embrace or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the people who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. Does this sound like a God... Who desires compassion and not strict obedience? There is no doubt, as we look through the scripture, God desires compassion. God desires pity. God desires kindness and love and mercy and gentleness and long-suffering. That is a very significant um, and powerful part of his character. But he doesn't somehow desire those things at the expense of obedience. God desires the full devotion of our hearts, so much so that under the old covenant, anyone who tried to draw his people away from him was to be put to death. Under Israel's theocracy, uh, God commanded for them to be uh, the instruments of his divine judgment. Um, And it didn't matter if the person appeared to be a prophet. It didn't matter if the person was a close relative was their very wife or their child or, or their parent or their brother or sister. Their devotion to the Lord, their relationship with him needed to be what was most important. Now, obviously today we don't live under a theocracy. We don't live uh, in a case where God has entrusted us with the work of meeting out his divine justice Uh, And so this is not what God has called us to do. But the same God that we serve today is the same God that said those words. And if this passage makes you uncomfortable, if if you kind of feel like, well, maybe this, this doesn't sound a whole lot like the God that I serve, then maybe we don't have a fully biblical view of who God is. This is Jehovah God. And that's how serious he is about our devotion to him and our service to him. Thinking that God desires pity and not obedience, you know, if, if, if that's our standard, we might look at this passage and say, well, that, that's just too harsh. I really don't think that that's actually what God means. I think that God would want me to show compassion to this person. Well, that's not what God says. And the only way that I know who God is is for him to tell me. And so we need to be serious about obedience. We need to make sure that we're not finding ways to rationalize disobedience. Uh, however much we may feel, like from a human perspective, we, we could justify that. Because the same God who desires mercy and not sacrifice mended. Uh, Abraham's radical and sacrificial obedience in sacrificing his son. Re- remember back in Genesis chapter 22. We're not going to turn there and read it for time's sake. Um, but God commands Abraham to go and offer up his son, Isaac, as a burnt offering. And in that passage, later on, as Abraham in faith obeys God, God says to him, uh, In verse 12, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. The New Testament as well commends him for this. James chapter 2, verse 21 through 23, we're told there, and the scripture was fulfilled in this act that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham being willing to even sacrifice, kill his own son is an example of the depth of his faith in the Lord. You know, if there was ever a time where we might be justified in saying, well, God, I, I know what you said, but I really don't think that that's what you mean. You know, can you imagine Abraham saying, God, I know that's what you told me to do, but I just really don't think that's consistent with what I know of your character. So respectfully, I'm not going to do what you told me to do. Because I just really don't think that that's actually what you want. Do you think Abraham would be lifted up to us as an example of who we're supposed to be? No, it didn't make sense to Abraham. It didn't seem consistent with what he knew of God, but he knew God said it. He knew that's what God commanded him to do. And so God teaches us that faith will be obedient, no matter how difficult no matter how big of a sacrifice is required, whether or not it makes sense to us, God desires radical, heartfelt obedience. And we have no authority to rationalize away what he's commanded us. Abraham does find out, and from Hebrews we find out he did even uh, pre- presume that God had some plan beyond Isaac's death. He knew what God had promised. He didn't know what that plan was. He didn't know why God would command him to do something that seemed on the surface to be so inconsistent with his character. But he knew that God said it and that was enough. If we think that God wants us to come up with our own picture of what it is that he desires and let that rule out what he's actually told us, then we've completely misunderstood what God is saying. But lest we give the wrong impression, I think it is worth noting that God alone has the prerogative to adjust adjust the requirements of his law. Um, God's law doesn't represent a higher authority than God himself. Uh, It's worth noting that God does have every right to adjust or make exceptions to his law. It's not that his law, his commandments are so rigid and immovable that even his own authority cannot alter them. Uh, The point that we're trying to make is that we don't have that authority. We don't have that prerogative to make those judgments ourselves. Look in 2 Chronicles for a moment. In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, we have a situation where King Hezekiah is trying to make reforms. Uh, Israel has strayed so far from their devotion to the Lord. They've been worshiping idols and false gods. And he's trying to tear all of that down to bring God's people back to worship him. And so for the first time in decades, they keep the Passover. But they don't actually keep the Passover on the first month and the 14th day. God had made a provision in the law in Numbers 9 that if they were unclean in the first month and on the 14th day, that they would be able to then keep the Passover one month later, the second month and the 14th day. And so on the second month and the 14th day, we see that they come together to keep the Passover. Start reading with me in verse 17 of 2 Chronicles 30. It says, For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore, the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, "'May the good Lord pardon everyone.'" who sets his heart to seek God the Lord the god of his fathers even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness and the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people What's going on here Well they're they're trying to keep the Lord this is something they haven't done for decades and they're trying to keep the Passover meal and it, if we read earlier, we see it is the second month and the 14th day. This is their second chance to get the Passover right. And yet these people coming, even from Issachar and Zebulun, from, from the northern tribes that have been wiped out, coming down to worship and keep the Passover, they don't know the law. And they're not keeping every aspect of it. They haven't cleansed themselves the way that they're supposed to, to keep the Passover. And God cleanses them. God heals them. Is this going against everything that we've just talked about? (laughs) I think what we see in this context is not that Hezekiah took the prerogative upon himself to say, guys, I I know you guys haven't done this right, you haven't cleansed yourselves the right way, but it's no big deal. God will understand. Go ahead. And what Hezekiah does is he brings it to the Lord. And he says, God, I know that we're not doing this right. um, And we're trying, please heal us. Please cleanse us. And God in his authority and with his prerogative has mercy upon them. If we have some concept of God's law that is just so rigid and immovable, kind of like the laws of the, the Medes and Persians that God himself you know, just can't, can't do anything with it. Oops, I said that. Now you have to do it. Th- then we've misunderstood. God is the authority behind the law. And God has every right to show mercy. God has every right to make exceptions. God has every right to tell uh, Isaiah to walk around naked for multiple years. God has every right to tell Ezekiel to defile himself by making sacrifices over uh, human dung. God has every right to tell Abraham to murder his own son because he is the authority. But what we need to realize is that we don't have that authority. And there is no place for us to say, God, I know this is what you said, but I think you would actually like this more. God has the authority over his law. We do not. And so we need to listen to God's word, whether it makes sense to us or not, no matter how hard it is, no matter what sacrifice we need to make. From the inner man out, we need to be fully devoted to obeying God's law. You know, this is similar to to a parent who may set a rule for their children. And yet in, in certain circumstances, has the prerogative, has the authority to adjust that rule as needed. They have that authority. The child doesn't. <laughs> and it's when we try to take that authority upon ourselves, try to take God's mercy and, and make it under our jurisdiction um, that, that we get in trouble. What we're talking about here is not situational disobedience. What we're talking about is situational obedience. <laughs> Where God can tell us That in this circumstance, this is how you obey me. Then God said it. That's what we do, right? But we do not have that right. And so at the end of the day, if we ever think mercy would justify disobedience to what God has told us, we either misunderstood God's commands or we've misunderstood his mercy. Remember in Matthew 22, when Jesus asked about the greatest command and the law, he says, you shall love the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Talk about steadfast love. Talk about mercy. Verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What God says, what Jesus says, is not um, these two commands are more important than all the law and the prophets. He says on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Every other area of obedience comes back to this. It's the foundation of every other area of obedience. How do I demonstrate my love for God? How do I demonstrate my love for my fellow man? I never can fully do that outside of being obedient to God's commands. It's never that what would truly be loving to God and what would truly be loving to my fellow man is to do something in violation of what God's told me. No, God doesn't make mistakes like that. And so God doesn't just want our outward acts of worship. He doesn't just want surface level obedience going through the motions but neither does he want heartfelt disobedience. (laughs) He wants an obedience that flows forth from hearts that are truly devoted to him and reflect his character and how we treat our fellow man. What about you today? Would you say that your view of obedience um, is consistent with what we read today? Would you say that that your view of what God wants is consistent with what we saw of his character in the passages that we read? If not, maybe we need to adjust our perspective of who God is and what he wants. It's very easy for us to develop a one-sided picture of who God is. Uh, And that can go in both directions. We, We can become so focused on meticulous obedience, on outward acts of obedience like the Pharisees, that we miss the heart of who God is. Or we can become so focused on just the, the heart and the attitude and the intention that we miss the importance of actually doing what God has said. But both of those things are emphasized within the scriptures. And if we want to truly serve the God of all creation, the God that reveals us himself to us through the scriptures, then we need to fully and completely from our heart and without be serious about obedience. If you recognize that you've not been submitting your life to the Lord, that you haven't been serious about obedience, that you've developed kind of this loose view towards what it is God desires of you, um, won't you make a change? God wants to help you. God is merciful and gracious and he forgives But we have to come to him with truly penitent and contrite hearts, striving to fully give our lives, our hearts over to him. Is that what you want to do? If you're willing to repent, to come before the Lord, to bring your sins before him, we'll pray for you. God in his grace will forgive his children. If you've never committed your life to him, you can bury your old man of sin in the waters of baptism. And by the power of the resurrection, by God's grace, you can be raised to walk in newness of life. If we can help you in any way in your relationship with the Lord, won't you please make it known by coming forward as we stand and sing together.